0: Greetings. I'm Dave Gilmore, and this is Design Intelligence. We're at the Venable Law Offices in Washington, D.C. as part of our ongoing series, Demystifying the Infrastructure Bill. And today, we're speaking with Art Guzzetti and Fred Wagner. Art Gazzetti is a 40-year professional in public transportation at the local, state, and national levels and serves as Vice President of Mobility Initiatives and Policy for the American Public Transportation Association. Fred Wagner is a partner at Venable. Prior to that, he was appointed Chief Counsel of the U.S. Federal Highway Administration during the Obama Administration and now focuses on environmental and natural resource issues associated with major infrastructure, mining, and energy project development. They'll give us insight into how this new bill is different than previous infrastructure bills and why that's important the changing model of public transportation and what that means to communities, and lastly, the opportunities that this bill brings to build differently for more sustainable, equitable, and resilient outcomes.
1: Welcome to this edition of This Is Design Intelligence, conversations with leadership voices in the built environment.
0: We are enjoying being here in Washington, D.C and we're really here at a time when we're talking about uh, the recent passage of a major infrastructure bill primarily dedicated to physical infrastructure about 1.2 something trillion dollars and in our industry which is the built environment industry representing architects engineers and constructors across the country there's sometimes the idea that flows that we are we've seen a passage And tomorrow, money's going to start flowing into the system. And how do we get in line to get some of that money? And I think we've heard in some of our other podcasts with this team that it doesn't quite move that fast as it moves out into the public markets. And what is so important to us is really understanding how will this money be appropriately distributed? How will it be overseen so that it is truly effective in its impact? And what fundamentally is the vision behind all of this. It's not just an arbitrary bill that's been passed. There's something that has a longer term impact vision. In the United States, we have seen over several decades that when primary infrastructure is put in place, it yields a two to six times effect above ground. In other words, uh, more spending starts to flow across the economy as a result of good infrastructure being put in place. The renewal of highways and byways not just new ones Um, bridges roads uh, new electric grids the way that water and power is generated all yields a new confidence in the built environment to put in new new dwellings and new places for people to be and to gather and so when we're looking at this we're seeing this not as a pebble in the pond but as a boulder in the pond that's been dropped that's creating this massive splash factor right And so, Art, you've been in this for, I think, 40-plus years, right? (laughs) And you've seen the comings and goings of other bills over time. Mm -hmm. Tell us what's different about this particular bill that's been passed, and what are you seeing as far as the vision that's behind this?
1: Yeah, if, first of all, the infrastructure, of course, n- not a means to an end, but all of the things, the, the, the grid, the broadband, the water, the transportation, all just make everything else work better through the access provided and through the productivity enabled uh, through those infrastructure investments. So it's an enabler towards bigger things uh, and really fundamental to making the economy work. What's first and foremost different is the magnitude of funds. We're not nibbling at the edges here, whereas there's enough money coming through here to really make a transformational impact. And coming at this point in time where we're emerging from the pandemic with a, a sense that we should be doing things differently, uh, perhaps attach some different policy goals uh, in a more formidable way, uh, climate, equity, health among them. Again, we're looking beyond the, the transportation itself. We're looking at the ultimate outcomes, and goals that come from it. So as we uh, build differently, uh, there's a chance to do things with an infrastructure and transportation that will be more sustainable, uh, more resilient, more customer-centric, more equitable. So there's a chance to achieve those broader policy goals uh, as we do it.
0: That's a pretty powerful message at the end of the day. I love the idea that this is enabling. It's not an end unto itself. It's a means into a larger end. Fred, we've spent some time talking about some of these major issues, and particularly around the distribution of funding. Your friendship with art over the years has yielded a pretty nice synergy in thinking around these things. When we look to the future of this larger social context, of what this infrastructure bill could yield for us. What are some of the cautionary tales that you put around this to ensure that we stay on task?
2: Right. First and foremost, I think the the, the cities and towns around America are going to have to grapple first with recovery from the pandemic. Uh, in the transportation world you know we had a tremendous you know dip uh, in public transportation uh, you know dramatic that we'd never seen before things are recovering now but the question is how's that going to recover permanently and there's things that continue to persist in terms of uh, uh, shortages of, of, of labor and basic things to help people get around uh, they've done a remarkable job in the industry about safety and protection but you still got to bring the people back you still have to bring the people back. And so the first cautionary tale is the transition from pre-pandemic, then pandemic, and a post-pandemic world, and then the, creating a better foundation upon which we can make these investments, I think. So that's one big uh, cautionary tale. And, and then the other major one, in my perspective, is is just the difference between our major uh, legacy programs in major cities around the country and those cities that have more aspirational goals and those that are you know building from scratch, let's say. So your Atlantas and New Yorks and Chicago's and San Francisco's that have major systems that need upkeep and maintenance just to operate efficiently and effectively, that's not going away. That's never going to go away for systems like that. And then in other smaller places where they're trying to create a solid framework for a positive public transportation system around the country, their challenges may be slightly different. So those are the two that I see. I wonder if you agree or you see others as well.
1: Well, certainly, uh, there's been travel patterns, et cetera, a- a- affected by the pandemic. Uh, yet amidst all of that, the support by transit for public transportation, which I'm here to talk about, is has been extraordinary. Uh, all through the pandemic, even when we were challenged, even when we were telling people don't ride because we have to social distance and stay home. Uh, that was the message. We were getting support from Congress that we hadn't ever seen before. Because I think they 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 sensed that while transit is very challenged at this point in time, that it's going to be essential to achieve the broader goals that we talked about earlier in in the long run.
0: So, Art, there's a lot of money blowing into all of this. And so... When we understand all of this, how do we deal with the priorities of jurisdiction to jurisdiction between states and municipalities and what the federal ideas are? What do you see as additional public transportation investment that's impacting development across the country?
1: Yeah, well, first on public transportation, the ultimate goal is to give everyone a better choice. You know, people are, are free to uh, choose however they want to, but uh, too many times public transportation hasn't been a choice. It's been you, you, you drive, uh, you know, and the community was built and designed that way. So here with this amount of money, we have a, a chance to design things differently. As far as the development, uh, yes, uh, you know, there, we this concept of transit hubs for, uh, you know, development to... Uh, grow around. Uh, there's also, uh, let me just mention, uh, there is a affordable housing element too. Uh, too many times uh, we've divorced housing policy from transportation policy, but you think if, if you are uh, going to provide a public transportation service, that needs to be near, near where people uh, can use it easily. So you want to connect uh, affordable housing with uh, transportation hubs. That's
0: that's one of many elements uh, that that can come out of this absolutely think that's critical i mean we're we're experiencing a significant labor shortage in many industries and it makes me wonder if that's part of the problem that we're currently living in is that we have a a sector of our population that would will take the job but i don't know how to get to the job i it's not easy for me and and by the way it costs too much for me to even spend time commuting or figuring out a way to get to work so Maybe the effort exceeds the need. Yeah, at the I, I end went to a day.
2: conference uh, recently, and there was a longtime transit advocate who will remain nameless for purposes of this conversation. And during the meeting, he said, "I've got a dirty little secret about the the transit world for for years." He says, "We go to places uh, where people don't work from where people don't live," <laughs> and and you know it, it, it was obviously you know tongue in cheek, but it, it highlighted. The need to plan and think carefully both about the transportation facilities themselves as well as the built environment, you know, to, to make them match. And how do we make them match to provide those choices that you were talking about, Art? Well,
1: and, and uh, I'll weave in the climate discussion also. I mean, uh, we know that transportation is 30% of the greenhouse gas emissions, higher than any other sector. Uh, and, and part of that's from by design. Again, we, we use so much additional energy in going solo and uh, solo cars from point A to point B. We can design communities better uh, around transit. Uh, and, and reduce our carbon
0: footprint uh, in so doing. Oh, well, I think that's interesting. You said design communities. And these days we don't really design communities unless you're a Dell web developer out in the middle of the desert creating, you know, places for over 55s to live in. But that's not normal life, right? We're not, we're not applying the, the true art and science of design too often. We're often responding and attacking on.
1: Yeah, well, we made some mistakes yeah. in the past, and and it's and we're bearing the consequence of it now. But but I think there is a little bit of feeling. Let's start anew. Let's start afresh. Uh, here's some money to do it. That's why I applaud the the jump in the uh, in the funding because it is a chance to do things differently.
0: So when you uh, here in Washington D.C., uh, you look at the the way transit works here. If you could do anything you wanted, what would you remove and
2: replace? See, that's a very dangerous thing to ask art to do. Whatever you know, want. <laughs> yeah. It's not like you don't have any. Because about at the end that. of the day, <laughs> this <laughs> money is not just about
0: repairing old inefficiency, and it's not just about creating new well let me, let me make an optimization, optimization. Uh, I you know we were recording this podcast at
1: uh, 600 mass Avenue in in Washington DC I remember when this part of town was not like it is now uh, but a a metro Washington metro station was built in New York Avenue just a few blocks away and that uh, that just changed this part of town the access in and, and the Washington Metro system there are many great examples around the country but Bethesda was not like it was uh, is a vibrant urban community until the Metro came there. Same with Arlington County, same with U Street in Washington, and same with right here, the, the Noma uh, neighborhood.
2: Well, the, and the Noma stop, you know, is, is fascinating. I, again, you're talking about a, a user of the Metro system for 35 plus years, but mm-hmm. the Noma station is a fascinating example because it was an infill station. Yep. Yep. The Red Line already went past it, and they – Literally plopped a station in between Union Station and Rhode Island Avenue to create this new station, and all you have to do is ride by on the on the Metro to see everything that's happened all
1: around it. These these are great urban success stories. Now there is a, of course, a displacement element too that we have to be mindful of as we make transit investments going forward. A big part of this bill is. The uh, capital investment grant program, which which does build new, so we do have to balance the taking care of what we have with building
0: a new. Both
1: are critical.
0: When we look at the at the future of this uh, this funding moving out and the initiatives that it's seeking to achieve, it's not simply uh, for the large first tier metropolitan areas. We saw a significant migration over the last. 22 months of people moving out of major metropolitan areas into secondary cities, uh, not secondary in value, but just in size. We saw Austin, Texas, for instance, explode. We've watched uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. We've we've been watching Charlotte. We've Nashville is is on fire as far as people moving in and out of there. Uh, these areas have not had the privilege of advanced thinking primarily around transportation, assuming that in 50 years, they could be the next Boston or Atlanta. What lessons do we bring to these cities when we're thinking about how do they plan now for the next 25, 50-year run? You know, it's interesting that some
1: cities— particularly in the Northeast, but elsewhere, grew up around transit. And you can see the bones of the transit system there. Uh, Some cities, many in the West, did not grow up that way. They grew up and developed largely around automobile patterns. But it's interesting, what do they want? how do they see their future uh and it's interesting most of uh, many of those western cities uh you know Dallas, Houston, Las Vegas, Salt Lake City, Phoenix, others uh view a future with a much more balanced system and another interesting point i'd add into that is when you ask the public directly through say a transit referendum, a ballot question, the response is very telling the percentage of approval, you know, when you ask the public, do you want more transit in their community? And are you willing to raise your taxes, (laughs) vote to raise your own taxes uh, to do so? Uh, The response is uh, well over 70% typically, and um, including some of the cities that you mentioned that view uh, what's their vision of the future. Uh, This past year, 20. 21? It was 100%. Can you wow. believe that? Wow. Every time the public was asked that question. And last year, in a pandemic year, when public transportation was very challenged, it was 48 out of 53. 48 out of 53 wow. times the public said, yes, we want more transit and we're willing to raise our taxes to have it.
0: That's extraordinary. Yeah. It really is. So, and what
1: could be more reflective of the public attitude than that? Than when you, that, when right. You ask them straight exactly.
0: Out. So do you contemplate, and I'm sure you do, a future where we have autonomous uh, public transportation, buses that are running without humans driving them, and uh, trucks that are hauling freight, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and if that's the case, and I, of course, we believe it is the case, the technology is in place, but the infrastructure is not really in place for that. We had an interesting conversation with Jim Burnley and Jim uh, Riley about this recently but how do we plan for that future and does that change the configuration of public transportation and the roads and byways and highways that such autonomous vehicles might travel on? Mm.
1: Well, of course, there's uh, autonomous uh, transit also, and we're sort of early adopters in that. There are many uh, upwards of 80 uh, pilot, uh, like automated shuttle transit pilots around the country. There's also some transit operations are on its own separated right-of-way, which lend themselves uh, particularly uh, for couldn't automation help in that in that corridor. Uh, and you know we're also early adopters in electric uh, as well. But as far as the automobile sector, I'm thinking the vision is first of all we're not going it's not happening as fast as people thought and nor are we going to go from zero uh, or one to five yes, <laughs> automation. Right, yeah. people think automation, we're going to jump from one to five. We'll do it incrementally. We'll do it in steps and we should do it in a multimodal way where the automated personal vehicles connect with automated transit trunk
0: lines. One of the questions that comes to us is: Might there be a more expansive definition of public transportation in terms of providing service to more people and/or to communities that depend most heavily on transit?
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, we, pre-pandemic, uh, which seems, you know, a, a different time and place, but it, there was huge disruption, call it. In the transportation community. In fact, my own title was changed from uh, Vice President for Policy to Policy and Mobility uh, because the mobility world was changing so much. And we embraced it. My organization, APTA, embraced the changing mobility landscape, saying, We're moving to an on demand world. Uh, there's going to be different partnerships. There's going to be different service models. There's going to be different technologies that enable all of that. And we can build a mobility ecosystem. Out of that, so long as it's coordinated and so long that it's, we have uh, the public uh, interest in mind, uh, we can have uh, transit as maybe the backbone of the system, but it will have many elements to it. Yeah, and
2: that, that came across as are the Ubers and Lyfts of the world competitors to transit or are they partners for transit? Wow. You know, and, yeah. and and is there do we have to be worried about that as people uh, taking away our ridership, or can we work with them as a way to enhance our ridership? And and in my way of thinking, uh, David, this goes to, to you know to your organization's mission. This also is going to go tremendously to how and where and why we build. Uh, I think one thing the pandemic has, has demonstrated, you know, in spades, is that the traditional model from the '60s and '70s. For highways and transit, both of the sort of spoke and wheel yes. type concept, that, that that's that's no longer, you know, we're we're no longer just worried about getting people from the exterior into the center and then back out again. People are living and working all around the wheel, (laughs) not just in the center, but all around. And so to me, that that dictates tremendously how transit systems plan and grow in the future, Uh, because the nature of the trips that people will need to take isn't just necessarily getting to the office, but if people are working from home or closer to home, they just may need trips to get to the doctor's office or be able to go to shopping to help their kids get around. And that's a very different sort of trip than I think transit had been planned for in the late 20th century. That's so so right, Fred. And, and you know, many think that the role of the transit
1: agency should shift to become more of a mobility agency, a mobility authority, uh, from just putting rubber on the road at you know <laughs> 5 a.m. in the morning to more holistically look at all of these options.
0: Do you think that's being considered? Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's it's yeah. Uh, you know, we've had a lot of soul searching within the transit community about that. And uh, yes, that is a vision that the transit agency should be more holistic in
0: its approach. So I traveled here from Atlanta to Washington, D.C., and I often will take what is called MARTA, the uh, Metropolitan Atlanta Regional Transit Authority train that goes from the north side all the way down to the airport. And I haven't been on MARTA for about a year and a half. It was my first time Other I've been taking Lyft. Uh, to or uber to the airport and so i decided i would take the train and uh, a very interesting observation was how few marta employees were around there used to be a, a there was a a sense that there was people here to take care of you you could ask them questions they would walk through the cars to make sure things were clean that people were being compliant with the the rules and so we see this dearth of employment in this space, which had created a, a very different dynamic on the train. It wasn't as clean. There was It, it felt a little unsafe uh, for the first time that I've ever felt that. Are we seeing that uh, the issue of uh, labor in the transportation market being a temporary challenge or is that a long-term challenge for us?
1: Yeah, well, certainly the, the situation you described, we want to avoid, avoid and avert that in any circumstance. No, there's, there's a labor issues everywhere across. It's not unique to transportation, but it's definitely affected the transportation world and it's fundamental, right? We can't do our basic things without the workforce needed to, to do it. Uh, I can tell you that's issue one. At this uh, particular point in time, but it goes beyond us. It's, it goes to the supply chain. It goes to the uh, construction industry. It goes to manufacturing. It, it goes everywhere. But it, it's certainly uh, a top priority for us. But what we're you know, one approach to it is we think a career in public transportation is making your community better, making your environment healthier, making your world better. <laughs> you know, so can we appeal to that element? of someone's uh, persona that will encourage careers in public transportation.
0: Now, I'd like to hear from both of you on how do you see the transit agencies and the states balancing the need to promote a quote unquote state of good repair with the potential expansion of public transportation services because there's there's a tension in that and how do we how do we adjudicate that tension and what do you see happening in that?
2: Well there's, there's a political element to that too okay and, and, and let's 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 talk about the elephant in the room which is you know when I first got to the Department of Transportation in 2010 uh, I was pulled aside by a colleague a political appointee and uh, she said to me you you know about what's going on between the state capitals and the big cities don't you And again, I I was from Brooklyn, New York. I said, yeah, sure, Albany, uh, New York. I I hear about that all the time. I, I didn't know what she was talking about. And what she was really talking about was this tension between the state DOT structures, which, again, are largely you know, rural, suburban, and then the urban cores in a lot of our, our major cities and states. And, and what I learned was of the tremendous competition there, you know, between the, the vision of the broader state and some of the cities uh, that exist. And so I, I don't think that tension is going away anytime soon, because I think the major investments that many organizations want to make uh, meet resistance, from political leaders outside of those cities to say, wait a minute, make sure your stuff works first. We want to make sure it works first before we grant you all this other discretion and money. And I think that tension is still very
1: present. And what, one thing I'd add on to Fred's uh, comment is this bill, and it's worth noting, and I'm glad we have a chance to emphasize it, is that this, this bill is multimodal in ways that previous bills were not. And there's a lot of money that's not directed to, say, highways or directed to transit or water or ports or anything. It, it's saying what, what can best achieve the... The, the policy goal we're looking for, so we, a discretionary—it's
0: discretionary, it, it's
1: discretionary okay. in a sense, but but discretionary beyond say the roads <laughs> or beyond the transit. It's you can whatever solution, and there are particular grant programs that are going to be dealt with in a multimodal way. You can you can apply whatever solution, whether it be rail, uh, bus, road, air, whatever solution can
0: uh, achieve the. That's fantastic. Yeah. Right, no, but are, are
2: we in America and you get to the point? Like right now in Europe, they're having political debates where, again, I don't think we'll ever get to this, but there's this shaming exercise that went on during the course of the past year where folks who would take the – plane for these short trips, you know, they said, you know, why aren't you taking the train? We have this fantastic train system in Europe, and you're taking the plane. Boris Johnson experienced this just in Glasgow. Do you remember that? He took the plane from London to the Glasgow Climate Conference, and he was pilloried for taking a plane, you know, and and then he made a very important point to take the train back from Scotland (laughs) to, to 10 Downing Street, and again, I think th- this is sort of the, the the debate and the philosophical debate that this country is going to experience. You know, how do we do that? You know, in this corridor, or you know, we're very used to that. You know, New York to D.C. You take the train, you take the bus, you can take the plane. I we used to have games in my old law office where we all had meetings in New York, and we would start at at 8 a.m. from our office, and we would deliberately take different modes to see who got there first, you know, just, just to see what would happen. How fun is that? Yeah. That's what
1: we did, though. Yeah, we, we we have the city pairs in this country that are proximate to each other to a point that rail should be the better alternative to to make those trips. We haven't had the the infrastructure in place to make that a alter- attractive option, but this bill is huge, huge transformational Emphasis, unprecedented emphasis
2: on developing our passenger rail network. So pick your pair, Portland, Seattle, Dallas, Houston, Chicago, Milwaukee, you know, Jacksonville, Orlando, Tampa. Uh, You you name it, there's, you know, Atlanta to Charlotte, you know, so there's so many different opportunities there. And and one of the things that I think that's so uh, that could be so transformational about it is imagine the opportunity from a development and an economic growth perspective. If you're a, a resident living outside Atlanta, and there's a great job opportunity in Charlotte. You don't have to move now. You know, if you, if, if you have that opportunity where you can take a high-speed option, you can live where you are, go to a great economic opportunity 100, 200 miles away, you know, get there quicker than you would, you know, in a car, and, and have that opportunity. Same thing with all these places. And, and I think that's part of the vision of a robust mobility you, you system. Know,
1: there there is a huge economic opportunity that can be unleashed through this and it's it's you know the technical term would be agglomeration yes right when you're when you're suddenly melding the Seattle Portland Vancouver economies and you say the Houston Dallas economies you get an exponential mm-hmm. jump mm-hmm. in economic opportunity there
0: so uh, in 2016 uh, design intelligence was commissioned by a, a global engineering firm that's not US owned to do a study on the built environment over a 10-year period from 16 to 26 to show what would be the largest and most sustainable growth in the United States. And they wanted to know by region, by state, by city. And so we dug deep and went into this study, went through all of our, our research people, and we concluded that California will continue to do what California does. It's it's a juggernaut of industry and commerce, et cetera. We, uh, though, predicted that the fastest, more sustainable growth over a 20-year period will be the state of Texas. It's probably because it is so business-friendly. And uh, the early pressure at that time to pivot out of a petrochemical-only or primary industry to a more diverse set of, of industry factors would play a big part in that. And then, uh, thirdly, and not not too far behind, was what we called the southeast. And the southeast was primarily uh, started at Alabama, Georgia, the Carolinas, and Florida, as the baby boomers, as they started moving into retirement in mass. Would probably say, not going to the desert. I want to go to a place that actually has trees and and um, where the the weather is a little more temperate, et cetera, et cetera. And there was many other factors involved in that. What's been so interesting is what you just brought up, Fred, when you said, imagine now that that is coming to pass and that we truly do build the unification of transportation beyond just. I-85 between Atlanta and Charlotte. But there are uh, multiple opportunities to bring those economies together and tie it up to Raleigh at the same time. You suddenly have this juggernaut of opportunity, but but so much of this is tied to the will of the states. So it's it's uh, I would love that there was a grand council that looked over these kind of things and made wise decisions. But it seems like the decisioning or governance around this is somewhat fragmented. How do we navigate
2: you know, Somewhat this being the understatement of the year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm trying to be polite here, yeah, but, yeah, no, but at but the it, end of the day, how do you create holistic solutions when you have a fragmented governance? Well, Art remembers in, in, in 2009, we had uh, governors in, in Wisconsin, Florida, other states turn down money to build high-speed rail. The money was there. It was part of the Recovery Act. We, the, the administration was promoting it, and they literally turned the money down instead of promoting it. So I, I wish I had a simple solution for that, but that's still a reality.
1: Well, we, we have an opportunity also to learn from prior mistakes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Sometimes that doesn't happen in, is a, is a, in the obvious ways that it, it might. Um, but there are – you know the um, Northeast Corridor, for example, has a commission uh, that has a very elegant plan. Uh, To spend this money quick, coming at a good time, right? We need to spend money and we have a plan to do it. And there are uh, the the foundations of other similar interstate cooperative agreements in the the Southeast and in, in other parts of the country.
0: Yes. I I think that's as critical that we expand on those lessons learned of what we're watching in that Northeast corridor and ask somewhat, let's decompose this and understand how did you get these disparate parties to come around a a plan and say, is that replicable? Could we take that to other parts of the country and sponsor more collaborative discussions? Because it's all pie in the sky unless we get real people talking with real people on both sides of, of the, the equation.
2: Yeah. I'll give a great example of the, there's a proposal in the Northeast, again, a brand new technology that people have been reading about called MAGLEV, the magnetic levitation train. And they, they were going to start it, and it ran into great opposition. Why? Because the planning for it bypassed, literally, bypassed, one of the reasons, bypassed certain communities. Mm. So they had planned it to go from, like, Washington up to, to, to Baltimore, but without any stops in between. And so the, some of the community says, "So wait a minute, you're going to build through me? Go. F- and I'm, I'm, it's wonderful that you can go really, really fast. That's nice." I said, "But but where's the benefit for me?" So we were talking about this notion of hubs and and, and opportunity zones and development with with transit. But they say so you, you're building something that's intentionally mm-hmm. going fast to go past me, not to, not to help me. You know, that's the role of some of these interstate, regional. Uh, entities i think david which is to say what are the needs and the objectives of the communities all along these areas and how can we you know promote their interests through transportation
1: that will connect to to a vision and and the the biden's vision for rail is is different than the obama vision because of the reasons fred just mentioned mm-hmm. you it might not be 150-mile-plus-an-hour trains because if you do that, you're bypassing places. and um, So anyway, uh, the the idea is to help
0: as many people as you can. As many people, yeah. I I travel to London quite a bit, and I land at Heathrow. And when I go into the city, there are two trains. You can take the express or you can take the stop-and-go along the way. Right. So the express is there to get people from the airport to the heart of the city. Bada boom bada bing, right? The other is accommodating the needs of people along the way. So the only way to do that was to create a parallel system and lessons learned, perhaps, from around the world. We have so much more to talk about. There's so many more lessons for us to bring forward, and there's so many more transformational behavioral changes that need to occur around this to be able to fulfill this vision that the administration has put out and that the Congress has approved?
1: Yeah, I'd I'd like to use the phrase, and have long used it, that public transportation is the great social equalizer uh, because it doesn't require you to have an automobile to get to where you're going and to have the means. Uh, but um, it does create the access to health, the access to jobs, uh, the access to education, and the access to opportunity and makes it available to everybody. It makes it available to everybody and in so doing it is in fact the great social equalizer that's fantastic and
0: therefore it's what can serve as a primary element toward um, equality for all of us it it
1: ties very much to that current long overdue uh, discussion in this country
0: tired of kicking the can down the road let's deal with it we
1: have the chance right now
0: we're pretty excited about what this is leading to i want to thank you both for joining me today Great conversation.
2: Thanks as always.
1: Thank you for joining us for this edition of This is Design Intelligence. The producer is Laura Spells. The sound engineer is Jared Canabel. This has been a DI Media Group production.